What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. We have an incredible interview today with Mia Birdsong, who is a TED speaker, an activist, a storyteller, a community curator. She's the author of the new book, How We Show Up, and the host of the podcast, More Than Enough. There's so much gold in this interview. She sheds so much light on why we are lacking community and belonging in America today, how things like racism, sexism, ableism hurts everybody, not just the people who are being oppressed by those systems and what we need to do to be able to heal as a country today and and find belonging, find true connection during a time where people are more lonely than ever. Mia opened my eyes to the power of community in a way that I haven't had in a very long time. I think for all of you who are building community or involved in community, you're going to walk away from this one with a, a ton of inspiration. Let's dive in. Mia, welcome to the show. Thank you. So excited to have you here. Huge fan of all your work and your most recent book, How We Show Up. You've been building community for a very long time and somebody that actually spent a serious amount of time researching the topic of community and belonging and what it means. Um, So I'm very excited to just geek out with you for the next hour on those topics. Fantastic. So why don't we just kick off, for those who don't know you, can you share a little bit about your background and uh, why you decided to write How We Show Up? Sure. So I'm an activist, broadly speaking. I do social justice work. And the work that I'm, like the thing I'm primarily interested in about kind of the U.S. and how we function is our social contracts. And I think about that both in terms of our institutions and our systems and what they owe us and kind of how we need to engage with them to get the things that we need. And then what we owe each other, what it means to be in relationship with each other and be in community with each other. So that's like broadly kind of where I see my work sitting. And then How We Show Up was really like the book I wrote to answer the questions that I had. You know, there's that brilliant Toni Morrison, like, get your shit together quote that's something like, uh, if there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So I think it was that it was really, you know, I didn't, I didn't write the book as an expert. I wrote the book as someone who was really curious and just seeking my own answers for what it means to be in relationship with people, what it means to be in community and how I could expand my thinking on what that could look like. Hmm. I love that. And so I know like back in 2017, you gave a talk and you're talking about kind of setting off on this mission and really aiming to define what does community actually mean and what does it mean to belong? Curious if you feel like you found a clear way of articulating the definition of those things. No. I mean, I don't think that (laughs) (laughs) I was ever really trying to define them. Okay. But to really understand them for myself. I feel like 
those are such personal experiences. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's important that we ask ourselves what those things mean for us, because I think certainly the word community has been used in ways that have like truly diluted what it, it ought to mean. And like we kind of throw community around things to just be like a group of people who, you know, have some vague, you know, kind of shared experience or common trait, even if they don't know each other at all. And I think it's really important that we kind of think about what community means for us. And, you know, as far as belonging, like I think about not just like if we're creating a culture of belonging, right? Like it's one in which we get to show up fully and expect to be welcomed and accepted. It's one, I think it's really about like, where can we be the like most whole versions of ourselves? So we're recognized for our talents and our gifts and our needs are tended to and our efforts are acknowledged, but like our growing edges are also kind of embraced, right? Like we are supported in the work that we all need to do to like grow as human beings and heal ourselves and deal with our trauma, like all of those things. And it's not like, it's not about like unconditional love. I think it's, it is, there's something about like being in a, in a place of where we, we're, there's discernment for me, like the places where I feel the most belonging, like I'm allowed to be my whole self, but I'm also supported in my accountability to my best self and my integrity and my values. And then, you know, and then we're loved, right? Like human beings like fundamentally need to be loved and cared for. And I feel like when we belong, we we experience that as well. Yeah. We talk a lot on this podcast with guests about that topic of what is a community and kind of the different levels of community, right? Because you're right. We do use it to describe a lot of different groups from, you know, loosely sharing an identity or passion. You know, you could be a fan of a sports team or work in the same profession, you know, you could call it the legal community right. or the accounting community, all the way down to the most intimate and deep relationships that we have, close family, close friends. And so perhaps part of the challenge is just a lack of language and that community being this umbrella term. Absolutely. There are many different flavors of community and belonging within that, that we we just don't have language to really articulate right now. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I kind of ran into as I was researching and writing my book is just that like, we don't have, like the word friend, right? Like that could be someone you consider family. It could also be a work acquaintance. And I think that, that the language creates kind of a laziness around our, like us, us finding clarity for those relationships so I think it means that what we really need to do is actually be, at least in our own selves, be specific and maybe with the people we're in relationship, be specific so that we know kind of what we mean when we say we're friends with somebody from work versus when we say we're friends with somebody who we basically consider family yeah. and kind of what the parameters of those relationships are and what the expectations are and what the commitments are. That person is friend level three, but you're a friend level one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So your book is you know, sharing the stories that people have around belonging, around community. So without the language to describe it, but maybe if you could articulate where did you find people lacking community or lacking belonging um, amongst that (laughs) that spectrum? So the folks who, and this is like the, the book came after kind of years of thinking and noticing 
like along the edges of how we build relationship and how we be in in family and friendship with each other and what it means to be in community. And the thing that I kind of kept bumping up against was that I would be in these in these environments talking about the so one of the things that I spent time doing was was talking about the way in which social capital like mitigates can mitigate people's experience of economic injustice. So if you're poor, your experience of being poor is less crappy if you are in deep relationship with folks because you can leverage social capital and take care of some of the needs that you have that other people who have more resources use financial capital for. So I would like, you know, give talks or presentations and kind of be describing some of the families and groups of people that I collaborate with who have deep social capital. And like, I just began to notice that at the end of, like at the end of the talk, you know, people always come up and ask you questions. And repeatedly, a white man would come up to me and just be like, confess to me, like, I don't have that kind of community. And, you know, initially I was just like, sorry to hear that or, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know what you want me to do with that information. And then, and then I began to notice that it really was like, I heard it so often from white men that I was like, what is happening? And then like, Mm. I asked myself that question and the, and the, my, like, you know, what my hypothesis became fairly clear and it makes sense to me, you know, in America, the way that whiteness functions and the way that masculinity functions is really about a particular kind of success that is about winners and losers. It is about, it is driven by a sense of scarcity and therefore a need to like hoard. It is deeply individualistic. Um, Mm -hmm. It is like toxically individualistic. It's all about like the myth of the self-made man and not needing help for anything and demonstrating your value through like how productive you are and how much you can accumulate. And white men, because white men built that system, have the most access to it. And what it does is it like, it cuts people off from their inherent humanity. And if that's the system, right, and the rules are set up to benefit people who are white, people who are male, people who already have financial resources, if you're not any of those things, right, if you're rejected from that system, then what I have found is you're more likely to figure out other ways to get your needs met. And that those, and the way that I found people, you know, do that is they do it with each other, because that is like how we are wired as human beings. Like folks just like return to what is just like wired into our physiology, into our brains, into just like how we function as like animals, right? We are social animals and that's just like who we are. Mm. So, you know, the book is, they're not stories about white men building community. It's all, it's, it's primarily queer black women, actually. There, but there's like, you know, unhoused people, there's poor folks, there are sex workers, there are just like people who experience marginalization in my experience, are the people who have the most wisdom and knowledge about what it looks like to create family and friendship and community outside of the very kind of narrow, idealized version of those things that American culture celebrates and promotes. That's really fascinating. I was just thinking the other day about this topic and how people, as as they accumulate wealth, 
they become less reliant on others. Exactly. And and that results in this loneliness or disconnect yes. from other people because you don't need them. Well, you do need them, right? But you can pay them. So right. you don't have True, to yes. like be in relationship with them because you, you know, if you don't have resources and you need someone to like cut your hair or watch your kid or whatever, then like you're going to ask a friend to do those things, right? You're going to ask people you're in relationship with. But if you have resources and you have been socialized in a culture that says asking your friends to do things like that for you is makes you too vulnerable, right? And then like you owe them in some way, right? There's this like transactional kind of idea about it too. Then you're going to pay somebody to do that stuff because then like the, the transaction's clear. You're just like, I'm giving you this much money for you to do this thing for me. And you don't have to build a relationship with them at all. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Dan Ariely's concept of social norms and market norms in his book, Predictably Irrational, where you have social norms, which is like one of the examples he gives is asking friends to help you move versus a market norm, which is paying movers. Right. And if you were to go to your friend and instead of saying, hey, can you do me a favor and help me move? You said, hey, I'll give you $100 to help me move it replaces the social norm because now mm, that friends totally. think like, oh, is, is it worth $100? Like, why doesn't <laughs> right. why don't they just pay someone else to do that? Why, why are they paying me to do it? But if they just said, hey, I'll buy some you know pizza and beer. Can you help me move? Then they're much more likely to do it and think of it as a social norm. I love that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you don't have an option, right. that's what you do. And so there's a there ends up being a richer culture of having those kinds of social norms in places where people have fewer resources. And let me be clear, like, I'm not romanticizing being poor. It totally fucking sucks. And people should have all the resources they need to get the things that they need in their lives. And in the context of capitalism, that includes having money. But I think that we, we have just created this kind of life that exists based on inertia for ourselves because we are very, like our time, we're very busy, right? And relationships really require time and tending to. And we give our, most of our time to our jobs where we often are building relationships, but where those relationships are held up by this really unstable scaffolding, right? Like, I feel like people often look to their workplaces to be where they're going to find most of their social connection. But those, but that relationship is based on you having a job, right? And if you get fired or, you know, the company downsizes or whatever, like all of a sudden the like easy access you had to these human beings who you're, who you were spending most of your time with is gone. And, you know, I don't know many people who, I mean, people definitely like make actual friends in their workplaces, but it's, I don't know people who like Bob gets fired, right? But Bob still shows up <laughs> at the like after work, like happy hour all the time, right? Like when everybody else is still there and all of a sudden this one person doesn't have that job, like the relationship starts to deteriorate. So maybe Bob stays friends with one person, but in terms of like the group that's been created, when people get, when people leave or they get fired, like they go away. One of the things that, that I think is important for us to interrogate, right? Is this, is the idea of need. Because part of part of this this thing, right? Part of our our comfort with paying for things as opposed to asking for help is that we're like allergic to asking for help. <laughs> like Americans have been socialized to be allergic to asking for help because we see need as weakness. And like 
let's be clear, like everyone has needs. We have physical needs, we have emotional needs, and we require other people to fulfill those needs. And for those of us who have resources, like our reliance on other people is often just like made very invisible Mm. because we can pay for them or like we just don't notice, right? That, you know, I think like think about kind of what, what the pandemic has revealed so many things to so many folks, right? Like we have this understanding of people as essential workers right now. And we know that like the vast majority of us do not eat unless someone else (laughs) grows and raises our food harvests it, moves it from wherever it was to the store where we're going to buy it, stocks it, and sells it to us, right? Like, we don't eat unless that happens. So we get that there is this way in which we are all deeply connected. But capital, right, puts us, like, steps in between me and the people who actually grow my food. We're farther removed from each other. Exactly. And because our culture celebrates this idea of independence and like not needing from things from other people, making our needs visible by like asking for help is really hard. Yeah. We take pride in like the kind of suffering we experience from doing it ourselves, right? And, you know, as we were talking about before, like the way we've set up accessing our needs through the exchange of capitals for goods and services creates this distance between us and other people because we don't have to have relationships with them. So, the ongoing attempt we make to make ourselves, like to be, I'm putting this in air quotes, independent, because independence is a lie, leaves us unseen because we're performing inter- independence because we're not actually independence. And we're performing this version of strength that comes with it. And that's not who any of us is because we're all, we all have vulnerability. <laughs> We all have times when we are struggling or we feel depressed or messy or we're unsure. And when we don't have actual relationships that allow us to show those parts of ourselves, we end up feeling lonely and disconnected. And I think that one of the things that I have like has just been like deeply (laughs) brought home to me during the pandemic is that supporting each other, asking for help receiving help, providing care. And so like being on both, like Retta Morris, who's one of the people I quote in the book, she talks about the divine circle of giving and receiving and how we we have a responsibility to participate in both of those parts parts of that circle in order to like maintain its integrity. And Doing those things is, I found, has is like one of the most powerful th- like ways we have to be seen and to see others. And it builds intimacy through like being vulnerable and letting ourselves be cared for. And it builds connection because like when I ask for help, right? When I reveal a need I have for support or just even for ease, I'm allowing the people who care about me to like enter into the interior of my life. And I think that that point of entry, like it's like, it's like if we're building these webs of connection, right? These threads of connection between each other, when we do that, we're anchoring those threads like more deeply in each other's lives. And I think the strength that that builds, right, is like how we actually build belonging. So if I understand correctly, it sounds like, you know, we're kind of on this path as humanity or specifically in America of this drive towards individualism and have created these social contracts in society 
to the extent where we don't need to protect each other. We have a police force to some extent. Mm -hmm. We don't have to put out fires. We have a fire department. We don't have to grow our own food. There's the entire food system. We don't have to wear masks because I'm not going to worry about you. (laughs) Like, I'm gonna, I don't want to put a cloth covering over my face. I would rather, like, not have to worry about you dying. Right. Another symptom of this kind of individualism. But to the extent that we need to need each other in order to find belonging and community. But as society develops, at least for people who have the means, they need each other less and less for food, protection, some of our base needs. But there's still an opportunity for them to turn to each other for their emotional needs in order to find belonging, because we're always going to have that. Society can't solve for our emotional needs. So I think, and I don't know that I would draw those, like, the distinction is like, here's our basic needs that our institutions and systems provide, and here are the, like, emotional needs that people, like, in our lives provide. I think that it, there's okay. there's more nuance there. So... I would say that, I mean, first of all, let's be clear. I don't think that police protect anybody. (laughs) Police protect stuff. As I was saying, I was like, (laughs) But part of what you're getting at, I mean, even, you know, if, and I've been an abolitionist for a very long time. And I'm, it's not that I'm like, get rid of police because we individually are going to like, keep each other safe. Though that is definitely part of it, right? Like, part of it is that we need mental health services. We need all the things that actually prevent harm and take care of us. And a lot of those things are going to be institutions and systems. Yes. And we need to be in relationship with people because when harm happens, if I'm in relationship with you, like we can come up with a way of addressing that harm that does not does not kind of devolve into you're a bad person and I'm going to throw you away because you did this bad thing. It's actually like, what is it, if I've been harmed, like what is it that I need to be made whole? What healing is required, Right. And then, like, if you're out here, like, harming people, like, there's something going on with you, too. Like, what healing do you need? And I don't need to be part of that, right? Like, I'm not saying that, like, I, as somebody who's experienced harm for you, then need to, like, take care of you. But if we have community around us, they're the people who are going to support me in healing from whatever harm has happened. And then they're the people who are going to support you in healing from whatever's going on with you that has made you cause me harm. And sometimes there's going to be repair there, but sometimes there's not. Sometimes that healing is going to happen separately. You can't do that without community. Is there a chicken or egg challenge here where it's like you need to, like people form these closer relationships and community through shared struggle and repairing harm, but they need a community there to do that. And so, you know, when harm happens, if community doesn't already exist, they don't have those tools and, and those relationships to turn to? I mean, I would say that from the folks I know who like facilitate transformative justice work, part of a lot of them end up spending the beginning of all of that time, like building a relationship among the people who are in the community. So that can be true, but you know, this is just, we're talking like, and I think that, that we often feel a pull toward our, our inherent connection during times of struggle and hardship, right? Like I think about, you know, when Hurricane Sandy happened, I remember like all of these pictures of extension cords with power strips like out on people's front stoops in Brooklyn so that people who had like lost their electricity or weren't in their homes could come charge their phones, right? I was there for that. My hometown got wiped out. All right. So, you know, there's this way in which we 
And Daniel Aldrich, who is this amazing professor, does health is he does all this research on kind of social connection and disaster recovery. And has and, and all of his research shows that like the thing, right, that determines how easy it is for a community to recover from disaster is about social capital. It's about how cohesive the community was before the disaster happened. But there are these ways in which like we will we all of a sudden will show up for complete strangers because we've had this, we feel like we're in it together. So yeah, so I think sometimes we we rely on struggle in order to build that sense of community. But I also think, you know, if I think you look at like birthdays, graduations, I mean, even, you know, I'm not, I don't sport. I don't like <laughs> know about sports stuff, but I think that like a lot of folks find a deep sense of community in like celebrating, you know, when their team wins or whatever, you know, and, like showing up at the same place. Like there's a, there's a bar relatively close to me that shows football, like British football games. And like, you know, so every, like when those games are on and like the same group of people like show up and like root for Manchester United or that's the only one I know or whoever, right? <laughs> and there's a way in which there's like, there's community building that happens there. And I think that celebration, you know, meals, like, I mean, one of the things I am like most excited about is that one of the groups of friends that I have, we have been diligently like meeting on Zoom, <laughs> like monthly since all of the shit started, I have I have multiple wow. like Respect. I have multiple groups like that. <laughs> that lasted like a month for me and my friends. <laughs> oh god, no! I have I have all of these amazing groups of friends who meet regularly on Zoom, and a group of us, there are five of us, we're all fully vaccinated, and we're going to have outdoor brunch. And Ooh. I'm making French toast and bacon. <laughs> like we're gonna have we're gonna have prosecco and like You're mimosas. We're yes, we're like fucking celebrating the fact that <laughs> we will be able to like gather together. And so much of that is centered around food. I mean, I have a whole chapter in my book that's about food because it is, you know, it is fundamental to our ability to live as humans. It's one of the things that holds culture, like food ways and cultures is just like, Absolutely. One of my, I mean, and I, I mean, I love food. I love to eat. I love cooking for people. I love sharing meals with people. Same. You can't, you know, if you're an organizer, you can't have no meetings unless without food. So there's this, and I feel like that's, you know, that's not about struggle. That is about, I mean, it's about meeting a basic need, but it also is about like pleasure and joy and sharing, right? Absolutely. So I think that there are these ways that we do build community that aren't just about struggle. And I do, you know, I would say we rely a little too much on struggle and I'd like more of us to be <laughs> thoughtful about that. I get what you're saying though. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, John Levy, he joined the podcast recently and he runs these events called influencers where he brings people together for these like unique gatherings where they can build community and one of the things he does is he has everyone show up and these are like generally pretty important people quote mm -hmm. unquote um <laughs> and he has them cook burritos together and yes! and it's just like this like leveler of identity and also no one can say what they do in the room uh -huh. so they have no idea that they're like cooking dinner with like an nba player or a Nobel laureate or all these important people. And they're all like making burritos together. And it just, it just creates this level playing field and connection because it's not just eating together, but preparing food together. It just takes it to a whole nother level. I love that. So one of the women's groups I have, which I read about in the book, we've has existed for like four plus years at this point. And we, there was a monthly gathering. It was a potluck. 
And it was probably, I mean, I'd probably been in it a year before I knew what even like half of the people who were in it did. And I was like, oh, that person's an editor at the New York Times. And like that person Mm -hmm. like runs this, you know, corporation that I've like, I use their stuff. I had no idea. And that was not by design. It was just kind of accidental that we didn't end up talking about what our actual jobs were and that we were talking about the interior of our lives and kind of, you know, parenting or relationships or sex or anger or whatever. That sounds so nice. It was fantastic. And we (laughs) also Especially in the Bay Area. Totally. We've continued to meet virtually as well. And I cannot wait for the first time that we get to meet in person again. That's dope. So on this topic, you know, this idea of what we're lacking in community today and this drive in America towards individualism. You've also said that we tend to nostalgize the past and the idea that we used to have this really strong sense of community in America. What's wrong with that narrative? I mean, I think the the problem there is that whenever we point toward the past for something as like good, we're mm. like ignoring all of the like sanctioned racism and sexism that made living in that time period hard for most of the population. Like, let's be clear, if we're talking about racism and sexism and classism, we're talking about most people. So I generally, like, as a Black woman, don't ever want to, (laughs) like, throw back to America's past for anything. I think that if... But the place I do think that we can at least, I don't know that we can like go back and return to, we can't, let's be clear about that. But you know, all of us, because everybody listening and paying attention is a human here, we all at some point in our ancestral history come from people who lived in deep connected community with each other because that is who we are as humans. Like that is so much of what it means to be a human is to be a social animal. And I think that just knowing that means that if we're in a place where we're struggling with loneliness or feeling disconnected or trying to figure out like how to meet people and make friends and be in community, we can trust that it's not something we have to like, we don't have to like learn how to do something that's completely foreign and new. It really is about relearning something that we actually like is inside of us because like physiologically like human beings are social animals it means it's not just an emotional thing like it is a physical thing that we need each other and i think that when we can you know we when we can kind of quiet our minds enough and really listen to what is definitely an emotional need but i feel like is also a physical need for belonging and for love and for care that is what guides us. And, it, you know, sometimes it's just like there's, it feels painful because we're feeling lonely. But I think the way forward is following that and listening to it. And frankly, trusting that in, certainly in the context of America, like there are so many other people who are experiencing the same thing, who want to feel, to be more connected. To John Powell talks about human connection as something that you don't have to build because it just is inherently there. You have to reveal it, right? There are these things that mm. our culture has kind of put over those, put over our connection to to make us feel like we don't belong to each other, to make us feel like we're separate and alone. And that our job is not to create connection, but really is to just like pull back all of those things that have been keeping us from each other. And for me, like that, that just feels reassuring, right? <laughs> like that the right. the thing we want is actually there. 
it's just that there's all this like crap on top of it and we just need to like the the work is really to just like get rid of that stuff right jeez i feel like i'm generally very optimistic about most things but when i like dive into this topic i find myself being or feeling pessimistic in terms of like we've designed this society we're we're on this kind of path toward just being more individualistic down to you know, we live in individual apartments or if you do get wealth, then what do you do? You buy more land with more space from right. other people. And, you know, we're never going to return to these roots of like hunter gatherer and living in, you know, the kibbutz style. I mean, maybe we will, but it just seems like that's not a trajectory that will happen as the population grows. I am a constitutionally hopeful, optimist, optimistic yeah. person. And I think there are a few things. Like one, I don't think of this when I think about like my work to support us in reclaiming our inherent connection. Like the world that I envision for us is not one that's going to happen in my lifetime. And I'm okay with that. Like I feel like there are clearly worlds that my ancestors envisioned for me that did not happen in their lifetimes, but I'm really glad that they pictured them and that they did the work to get me where I am. So I feel like this is, this is generational work, and we right now just have to do our part. I do, however, feel like there is, you know, there is an urgency because part of our disconnection from each other is also a disconnection from the rest of the living creatures on the planet. And we're not just inherently in community with each other, we're inherently in community with, you know, the trees and the birds and the earthworms. And humans are in part because we have decided that like somehow we're separate from nature as opposed to like we are nature, right? Mm -hmm. Have utterly just like laid waste to this planet that we live on. Yes. You know, and I'm not that worried about the planet. Like, I mean, we talk, when you we talk about generational work, I'm like generational work for humans is like five seconds in the like arc of the earth. <laughs> Right? right? The planet's going to be fine. Earth will keep being Earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, it's us <laughs> that yes. needs to worry. Exactly. You know, and I feel like we're, we are not headed toward a good place. Obviously, we haven't been for a long time. So there's something that feels urgent about us reconnecting, not just to ourselves, but like to the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is like clearly unsustainable. But well I said. see that, you know, I mean, I've been doing social justice work for more than two decades now. And I feel like in that arc, the things that seemed fringy or like out there or too woo when mm -hmm. I was, you know, in my 20s, it now is guaranteed income. Like when I first started, you know, I only started talking about guaranteed income, like, or thinking about it and researching it like five years ago. And all of a sudden, like, people are, you know, having like people, moderate people are having conversations about it. Mm -hmm. When I think about abolition and, you know, my introduction to abolition in 1998 and how many folks were just like, that sounds like, like utopia nonsense, right? And now we have people all over the country talking about defunding the police. So I feel like my faith in us is that if our connection to each other and our connection to the rest of the planet is, as I believe both like in my heart, but also because of science, is real, right? that we, I feel like we're finding our way back to that because the thing that we, this like lie that we've built is just unsustainable. And I feel mm -hmm. like it's crumbling. 
And part of, you know, the pandemic is certainly part of that in so many ways, both in terms of it existing at all, but also like what it has revealed to so many of us about what this like, you know, sketchy scaffolding that we've built our lives on really looks like. So I'm just hopeful that like we we can't keep lying to ourselves for much longer. And I think that when I think about how, like I think in the course of all this, I keep getting asked like, what do I do, <laughs> right? Yes, well, so my next question yes. it was, I'd love to frame it specifically as well um, for, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are building communities. So they're in the position to actively create this kind of change, create new norms, uh, b- create belonging for people. And so would love to hear what you recommend as someone who's both built communities and researched this and, and been an activist for so long, what what do you recommend community builders do to work towards uh, fixing this problem? Yeah, like honestly, it really is like keep building communities, embrace interdependence, stop. A friend of mine and I were talking yesterday about scarcity and how, you know, people think they, they're they like fighting over a teeny piece of the pie and we started calling it scarcity pie. Like stop eating scarcity pie. Recognize that racism and sexism and classism and ableism and all the other forms of oppression that exist in America are keeping all of us from our liberation. So one of the things that I feel like, you know, I mean, I think we think of, you know, we think of like racism is like something people of color need to are like dealing with and sexism is something that like, you know, women and gender nonconforming people are deal with and Ableism is like what disabled people are dealing with. And like, to be sure, right, the experiences that folks who are on the like shit end of those of those forms of oppression are dealing with is it's particular kind, it's a particular kind of harm. And it's really, it's bad, right? We don't want that. But, you know, I think we know, right, that while sexism and patriarchy like is particularly harmful for women and gender nonconforming people, like it's not good for men either. It, restri- it like restricts how men are able to be a whole person. So I think like that's part of what we need to be talking about. That's part of what we need to be recognizing is, in, is that in the places where we have been told, right, by our society because of the way it's set, set up, that we're winning, right? We're benefiting. We're like on the, we're privileged. It's not not true, but it also is not good for anybody. And I think we need to- Could you say more about that? Grapple with that. Yeah. About that topic of like how sexism as an institution affects men negatively and and doesn't allow them to be their full selves. Is bad for men. Yeah. I mean, you know, sexism says that men have to, you know, I mean, all of the like kind of traditional tropes, right? Right. Like men are not allowed to cry. You, if you are a dude and you experience like physical or emotional harm, like you're supposed to suck it up and just like keep going you're not allowed, like, you prioritize and try to make yourself be, and then this is air quotes again, like, logical and reasonable and strong, and you need to protect other people, like, you don't get protected. Like, there are all of these ways in which conventional masculinity is mm-hmm. just this, there's a bunch of men who do work around deconstructing patriarchy who call it the man box, right? There's this box that men fit inside of, and it doesn't allow men to be comfortable in feeling vulnerable or sad or ask for protection or 
hug each other or tell their or cry in front of their friends or tell them that they love them or hold hands or like all of these things, right? That men are just trained from a very young age not to do. And it's so restrictive. And part of what happens, right? Part of the violence and harm that women and gender nonconforming people experience from men is like the fallout from men not not knowing how to express their emotions or men feeling fear or feeling shame and acting and reacting with like violence and defensiveness. So I so I'm like there's like ways in which like we just need to like create more room and safety and protection for women and for gender nonconforming people, but men really need to do their work on their own stuff. And this is also true of when it comes to class, it's true when it comes to ability, it's true when it comes to race. All of us are holding some kind of healing that needs to happen around all of these intersecting forms of oppression. And the way that we get free is by doing that work. And we can't do that work by ourselves. Dudes can't like go sit in a room and like unpack (laughs) all of their like internalized patriarchy. You have to be doing that work with with groups of men and in relationship with women and gender nonconforming people and probably in relationship with a therapist. Like there's just like a whole lot of stuff there. And I think that if we're not doing that work, then we're really missing the point. And this is the other thing I want to say, because I think that so often we talk about that those that kind of work and like we feel like this like weight right i think that that work is joyful as hell i think that that work it's not that it's not hard and that it's not painful because like inevitably there's like pain and trauma and just like stuff that you have to like unpack about yourself but the lightness that comes from the breakthroughs that we have in like you know in excavating those systems of oppression from ourselves, the way, the room we make for our wholeness as we like push back these restrictions that, you know, we've been told like this, being this way is not for you, right? There's like the expansiveness we get to lean into around like who we are and the discovery of who we are that we get to have because we're no longer held to some preconceived idea of what our identity is, is so freeing. And like, I just think there's so much joy in that, into being like wholer, more full people. Absolutely. To add to it too, I'm probably not going to articulate this well, because I think it's fascinating the concept of how these institutions hurt the people who are even, you know, quote unquote, privileged by it. Yeah. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of our interconnectedness and the fact that it already exists. It has to be revealed but we're we're struggling today and a lot of people are struggling today and so in ways that we probably can't perceive uh, on an individual level sexism racism ableism is hurting our ability to be in community absolutely absolutely i mean if you know let me i'll pick myself right i feel like one of my huge growing edges is around disability justice and understanding ableism and the ways in which it shows up, um, or the ways in which I'm perpetuating it. And the arc, right, that I feel like I'm on to understand that, like, is in many ways, right, like, about being in deeper community with disabled people, 
And that could be like actual community because I have people in my life who have disabilities. And my the more I'm doing my work, the more I'm able to see them, the more I'm able to show up for them, the more I'm able to be with them, right? Because I'm not oblivious to like, you know, like, you know, I think about if I'm inviting somebody over to my, like if I want to meet up with a friend who uses a wheelchair, right? I might just like invite somebody over and not think about the fact that I have stairs. <laughs> but now if I'm like, I mean, I'm picking a kind of obvious example, like I'm not that, that dense. Which isn't that obvious to a lot of people. So I'm like, okay, if I'm going to meet up with somebody, like I want to, what I need to do is like be in conversation with them so that they don't feel like they have to like be like, hey, can we meet someplace that like is wheelchair accessible? I should just be like, so I these are the three places that I thought of for us. They're all wheelchair accessible. And then they don't have to do the fucking work of telling me where they can, where they can meet. Or if they really need to come to my home, then I'm like, okay, so what do we need to do? Like, what do we need to put in place to make it so that you can come inside, right? I'm thoughtful in a new way. And I'm doing the work of making, creating a culture of belonging, right? For that person so that they're not having to advocate for themselves all the time. Like, those are the kinds of things that I feel like we, as we, as we expand our understanding of the ways in which we hold power and privilege, like we, we start to notice other people more fully. Which, which then is allowing us to notice ourselves more fully because we're like, right. oh, like, I don't have to do that. And like, it's not because the world is built for me, right? Like earlier we were talking about how everyone has needs, right? I have needs, but the built world is made for the body that I happen to be in. If my house was at the top of a fucking tree, right? If that's like how houses were built, I would have a hard time getting into it. But sure. that's not how it's built. It's built with stairs and I happen to, you know, I have a body that can use stairs. So I just think that like it is, it's about like being in deeper community with more of us. It is about making sure that more of us are seen. And that, you know, and in my mind, like if I think about the ways in which I have learned to like be more, you know, be more aware of like the experiences and lives of transgender folks or disabled people or queer folks, like it is making my life richer. It's making my life more like, it's like the spectrum of colors that I can see, like gets broadened the more mm -hmm. I become aware. I love that. It is like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I didn't know that that color even existed. Yeah. And now I see it all the time. Yeah. And that to me is just beautiful. It reveals that connection and community that exists. And just like the richness of somebody else's experience, right? I mean, sometimes like to be sure, like sometimes that experience is hard and challenging but it makes me care about making a world in which like that experience isn't as hard and challenging. Right. Like, you know, like Absolutely. I think about my son and the fact that, you know, as a kid who has grown up in the Bay area and attends a camp and a school that is like the, the most amazing, like radical place on the planet, he doesn't think about gender. <laughs> he doesn't have to unpack his thinking about gender in the way that I have. Because he understands transgender folks and gender identity in a completely different way than I grew up understanding it. So it's like, it's not like it's hard for him. Like, that's just like how he thinks about stuff. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. And because of that, like, his thinking is way more expansive than mine is because I have to make an effort and he doesn't. Yeah. Well, now you've made me optimistic again. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, so it is time for the rapid fire question round, everyone's favorite part of the show. 
I feel like this is this is the part that makes me nervous. I'm like, it feels like a quiz show all of a sudden. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it makes everyone nervous, but that's what makes it fun awesome. and exciting. <laughs> okay. Okay, you ready? Yes. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? That's not your own. I don't give gifts like I give gifts based on the person. Like I don't have like a generic gift. So I don't have a favorite book to give to people. I think everyone should read Octavia Butler, but I don't really give her books as gifts. Okay. Well, we'll go with Octavia Butler. Okay. So that's like your one of your favorite authors? Absolutely. All right. Is there, I'm not familiar, multiple books, one book? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you. I'm so oh, excited yes. that you get to discover the vast universe of Octavia Butler's writing. So many books. All right. Speculative fiction. Is there one that I should start with? That's hard. I'm not going to, I'm going to let you just All find. Right. All right. <laughs> I mean, Parable of, Parable of the Sower, I would say. I started to reread it during the pandemic, though, and it just like was a little too close. Like it felt too real. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> so it depends on how you how you hold those things. But all right, awesome. Yes, adding it to the reading list. Okay, uh, my uh, my podcast team made me ask this question: What mic do you use on your podcast? More than enough was recorded with a Shure SM7B. My husband is a recording engineer, and he did the recording and all the music for more than enough, which is why it sounds, sounds incredible. Fantastic. I'm yes. also using a sure SM7B and mine doesn't there sound as we good go. as yours. Well, so. you know, he does all kinds of... If your of... husband's not busy, you know, just <laughs> let me know. <laughs> it is like one of my, like one of the many benefits of being married to that man is that he's a recording engineer. And I'm surprised at how often that has been useful to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good benefit. Okay. In one minute or less, share your wildest community story. I cannot repeat those stories. <laughs> no, I have to know. <laughs> you won't. I will never oh, tell. No. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. I'll go to the next question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? Food. Food. <laughs> food. Just food. Totally. <laughs> food. <laughs> okay. I love it. That's a great engagement tactic. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? I don't know. Mm, Is that really interesting know. to people? I mean, I feel like as a child, I might have. Like, I might have worn socks with sandals, but... Some people get very opinion about this, so... Yeah, I mean, yes, when I'm camping. Yeah. Like, okay. when it gets cold at night, like, I think I probably put socks on with my sandals. I would not go out like that, right. though. Yeah, that's a, that's a logical thing to do. Yeah, totally. So you wouldn't go out with it. Maybe that's a better question. It's like, where's your line of socks with sandals being okay it is okay for anybody who feels like they they want to do that <laughs> i personally have never if and i might you know i feel like there might be some like sandal spoken sock like a true community builder combination that i would be like oh i could rock that but generally oh, yeah. i'm not wearing socks with sandals all right who in the world of community would you most like to take out for lunch i feel like there were so many people who i interviewed for my book that were just brilliant but i and i know most of them though so Okay. I have shared meals with, with them before. So I don't know. I, I'm like, are there famous community builders? Like, I don't know. There's some. <laughs> I believe you. I've had meals with most of the people that I would want to have meals with. You're a lucky person. And I'm sure that's an unsatisfying answer. Living the dream. <laughs> okay. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I don't know if I'll get an answer to this one either, but... Beekeepers are often weird yes, good in like the best yes. way but like definitely such an interesting eclectic group of people get drawn to beekeeping that's a great 
segue into my next question. What have you learned about community building from beekeeping? Oh my God. So many things. First of all, so, you know, a hive, so I'm talking about honeybees, right? Like most bees are actually solitary bees, but honeybees cannot live individually. They Wait, most bees are solitary? Most kinds of bees are solitary bees. What? Yes. Exist in hives? No, most bees are solitary bees. What? They like go do their bee business. They hook up with other bees and they like, they live in the ground. They live in little holes in wood. Most bees are solitary bees. Honeybees. must be American. Are in hives. I mean, let's, they're solitary, but they, they, you know, they hang out with other bees. They like (laughs) do all the things, but honeybees, right. Are like, they cannot, they can't live by themselves. They, so like. We don't have an, an like they're just like they're deeply communal. And let's you know, I try not to anthropomorphize honeybees, but <laughs> you know, one of the things that is super cool about honeybees is so a hive is like 95, 97% female. Um, you have the queen and then all the workers are females. And the drones, who are the dudes, only exist like during the warm season and mostly in the spring when um, new queens are emerging and they need to mate. And drones go to, they like every day they leave their hive, they leave all their sisters, and they go to a place that we call a drone congregation area. Seriously, that's what we call it, where it's just like thousands and thousands of drones hanging out, like waiting to get laid. And then a queen will come and like mate with like, you know, 20 of them, and then they die. And then she just like keeps all the sperm, like, you know, I don't know, in like a sperm pocket. So because bees, value right the health not only of their own hive but of like beehive like all the hives in their geography a queen will not go to a drone congregation area near her hive because she does not want to hook up with her brothers she wants to like help maintain the health of all you know of all the yes so she will fly farther to find a drone congregation area that's not near her hive um wow and i just feel like that's super cool. The fact that like, you know, bee, so they're, you know, every bee has a job and their jobs can change over their lifetime, um, which is like for worker bees is like, you know, six weeks. But there are bees that are like their job is to defend the hive. And, you know, if a bee stings you, their abdomen comes out, a worker bee, and they die. So I also just think there's something really interesting and beautiful about the idea that like, they, you know, bees sacrifice themselves for to protect the rest of their family. And, you know, I ain't sacrificing myself for nobody except for <laughs> my children. <laughs> like, right. I'm not trying to, like, take a bullet for my, you know, my neighbors. But there is something about just, like, coming to, like, recognizing a threat to your community and understanding that, like, if you can, if it's in your capacity, like, that part of your job is to, like, protect other people. That feels really important, too. Love that. Love that. You did a great job with that question. Okay, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, a couple more. What's a question I didn't ask you that I should have? I feel like one of the things we need to talk about in America generally, but certainly like the pandemic has brought this up, is consent and boundaries. Mm. Okay. I don't have a short, like, (laughs) that's not an act. I know I didn't say that as a question, and I don't have any short answers. But I feel like we, the CDC said that like, if you're vaccinated, you can stop wearing your mask, right? And in my mind, if we lived in a culture that was less individualistic and we felt a 
deep sense of like shared responsibility to care for each other, I'd be cool with that. But because we don't, right, if I'm out in the world and I'm fully vaccinated, like people don't know if I'm not wearing a mask because I'm fully vaccinated or because I'm an asshole. And I feel like it's part of my job to like in being part of society to think about the comfort of other people. So I'm going to continue to wear my mask in public, even though, you know, the government has said I don't have to, because I feel like I I want people to not like we're all, you know, we've had like a year plus of trauma and anxiety, and I don't want to be contributing to people's anxiety, like that they're going to come near me or have to be near me and just like wonder, like, is this person a jerk or are they fully vaccinated? So I'm just going to continue to wear my mask. And I, I feel like, like that. that that thing, which it feels to me is like around consent, is around boundaries, is around rejecting, you know, individualism and thinking of ourselves first is like part of what we need to be thinking about more when it comes to community. Love that. Okay, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Okay, first of all, this is like a shitty deathbed because on my deathbed, I want to like be able to hold court for a really long time. <laughs> Let's just be clear. I'm like, if I'm going out, like, I want lots of time to, like, say what I gotta say. But... Right. More than a tweet. Yeah, You could have a Twitter thread. Totally. You know, I think it's all the cliches that are also true, right? Mm-hmm. Laugh more, love more, rest more, listen more, seek joy and pleasure, buy less shit, give fewer fucks, look at the sky, you know, notice, smell the roses, like all that, you know, be present to your life, hydrate. That's what I'm trying to remember a lot. I don't drink enough water. It's all that, right? Like work on your shit, (laughs) all that stuff that I feel like is like the stuff that we always hear about what people say on their deathbeds and is like the advice that we get after, you know, people who survive near death experiences give us like those things are cliches, like for a reason. Right. They're cliches because they're true. And there isn't there isn't better advice than that. Like we really just like those are the things we need to be doing. Love it. All righty. Well, that is the end of our show. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join me and participate in this conversation and for the example that you're setting. I think I'm I'm walking away with this with a, a lot of inspiration and thinking a lot about the impact of my work in building community and the kinds of community that I'm building and why I'm building community. I think a lot of us do this work because we just like connecting people with each other. But you really, for me, opened my eyes to why that's so important and the forms of community that we really need to be focusing on today. So just really grateful for your example and for sharing your lessons, for writing your book and for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where can people go to find you, continue to learn from you? They can go buy the book, How We Show Up. Yes, I'm at Mia Birdsong everywhere. My website, Twitter, Instagram, probably LinkedIn. (laughs) Probably LinkedIn. And they should listen to my podcast more than enough on guaranteed income. But it's really about like what we deserve. And it's definitely about how we think about what other people deserve. So there's a community piece there. There's a TED Talk that I gave in 2015 Mm -hmm. that has some good gems in it. Those are all the places. And here. That's awesome. On this podcast. And here. That's right. Right here. All right, Mia, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. 
This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.